Peer Review is a series of podcasts designed to shed light on the extraordinary breadth and diversity of talent that sit in the House of Lords. The House of Lords often gets a bad rap because it is thought to be a house of cronies and it is an unelected house. But I hope through these interviews you will see that there is this extraordinary talent, there is a great knowledge and experience, and with that I leave you to draw your own conclusions. So my guest today is Tim Clement-Jones, a Liberal Democrat peer, uh, formerly a, a lawyer, and uh, been at the heart of the Lib Dems and indeed the Liberal Party since the 80s at least when indeed you were chair of the Liberal Party in 1986 to 1988. You became a peer in 98, but I want to take you back to the beginning. You, were, you went to Halebury School, if I'm not wrong. I did. And uh, uh, my old brother went to rugby because my father went to rugby. Um, but uh, we were I was one of five children. So uh, the, the who paid the bills was rather important. And so my grandfather, who went to Halebury, insisted uh, that he wasn't going to pay the fees and, unless I went to Halebury. So <laughs> I and my younger brother uh, were both packed off to Halebury. And uh, actually, of course, it's a, it's a very good school. But nevertheless, we, all, we always felt that we would have been closer to my older but where, brother. Where were, you, where were you brought up? Um, we were brought up everywhere. I was born in South Wales. Uh, we then moved to Sheffield. We then moved to well, why, why did you move around so much? Well, my father was in business. I mean, he was um, a personnel manager and then personnel director, uh, as they were called then. They yeah. weren't uh, using the fancy title of uh, human resources. Um, and that was his métier. Uh, and so he moved around the country. And uh, my uh, elder sister and elder brother were both born in different places. So, so actually, uh, Halebury was a sort of five-year consistent uh, dwelling, in a sense. Well, absolutely. And, yeah. you know, we used the through train uh, to back to Birmingham for most of that time. But then we moved to uh, Sussex. So it was, it was uh, uh, quite a change. I mean, you can imagine having lived in Sheffield, Birmingham and South Wales and then uh, for most of my teenage life in Sussex, uh, that's, that was quite unusual. I had a similar upbringing. Sort of, my father was in business and moved around a lot. Uh, wh where did you actually, in the end, plant your roots then? Or uh, are, are you sort of permanently on the move still? No, I'm a I'm an absolute Londoner. Uh, I'm not very good with uh, welly boots and mud. I did have a cottage in the country uh, for about 30 years, um, but uh, finally gave up the uh, the weekend treks uh, and now I don't think you could uproot me from London. So uh, from Halebury, of course, being a very brilliant man, you went to Imperial and then on to Trinity. Uh, and then where, where next? Uh, well, after Trinity, um, I got an article clerkship, as they were called, um, uh, interestingly in those days, very quill, quill pen sounding, uh, at Clifford Chance. They were called Coward Chance in those days. So you had to do a two-year uh, training period after going to the College of Law. Um, and then I left them uh, immediately after uh, I'd done my uh, training. Mm -hmm. Uh, and went on to another uh, law firm, uh, as they were called, um, uh, Johnson Hicks, and now they've been merged. You know, law firms uh, are almost indistinguishable from mm. what they were 40 years ago. Um, so I uh, uh, moved on from there, and then I went in-house 
um, to a very interesting little multinational com- uh, company in some ways called Letraset. And they did what was the, essentially the precursor to what you could do now, uh, quite simply, on an Apple Mac. They will rub down lettering, but they were covered by patents, copyright, trademarks, and so on. And that's where my love of uh, intellectual property came from. Yeah, and then eventually must have been artificial intelligence you, you picked up at an early age. But I want to come back to those later because they've been great passions of yours. Ultimately, you ended up back in the in the profession, didn't you? Because you were a London managing partner of DLA Piper in, from 2010s. Yes, I love that job uh, uh, because although I'm not a you know great corporate lawyer, I do think I'm a reasonable uh, leader and manager. And uh, what we were trying to do, really, in a sense, was put DLA more on the map in the city uh, because, you know, we're, we're a bit of an interloper. Uh, we were a bit of an interloper. You, were the big, in you became almost the biggest law firm in Britain. Didn't you? A- a- and the world, absolutely. I mean, we're, oh, the world. You know, Sorry. Well, yeah. we're now kind of up there, one, two, three, four. Uh, they, do, they move around a bit depending on uh, uh, how well they do year to year. But DLA Piper is definitely now one of the top five. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, putting them on the map in the city was part of the agenda. So it was very exciting. And how, mu- uh, how much of that? So you were there for 10 years, roughly? Um, I was there actually for 20 years. 20 years. Uh, so you saw this huge growth of the firm. Huge growth. And of course, at that time, we had the inspirational Sir Nigel Knowles as our uh, CEO. I mean, he grew them from a relatively small regional business to a major uh, uh, global law firm. And, and that is an extraordinary achievement. Yeah. And you were, you were global government relations partner as well. I mean, how, how do you how does that align with being in, in the Lords, for example? Well, you've got to be quite careful, I guess. I had to be very careful. It, it was all about strategy. It wasn't about anything to do with lobbying. And, of course, people forget that quite a lot of government relations is how do you position yourself? Who do you talk to? You don't actually do the advocacy yourself. Uh, 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 you basically may wind people up and point them into battle. Um, but a lot of it I was chairing. I wasn't actually the uh, uh, the sort of partner in charge, so to speak. Uh, yeah. I chaired a practice. So it was actually relatively okay. And, of course, one of the things about speaking in the Lords is that you have to declare your interest if it's on a subject which you have an involvement, which Completely. presumably you did on uh, well, frequent occasions. Yeah, you never, but of course, in, the, in that position, you make sure you never have what are called personal clients, um, that basically all you're doing basically is helping your colleagues perform uh, their roles uh, and get their strategies right. So, uh, and of course, the rules have tightened up uh, as the years have gone on. How did you get involved in the Liberal parties, it was there. Well, interestingly, I was a Tory at Cambridge. I was very much a uh, what uh, was called glad to hear a, that. a cuker, cuker <laughs> man. And of course, I was a member along with all the, the 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 people who subsequently joined Tory cabinets, like Richard Ryder and David Meller, and so on, uh, uh, of of the Conservative Association. Um, but after uh, Cambridge, uh, I was actually I, I I was very disillusioned by Ted Heath. I thought that he came in on a a great sort of uh, wave of enthusiasm. And I was very enthusiastic about the European project and all that kind of thing. And then suddenly we get a a price and wage control economy. 
uh, which he, you know, he'd never really indicated that that's what we wanted. So I thought, well, if that is the solution, maybe he should have seen it was going to be the solution, and maybe uh, he should have put a better strategy for it into place. And at the time, uh, uh, strangely enough, Jeremy Thorpe was actually uh, a very inspirational leader of the Liberal Party. And they'd always advocated this kind of wage and price control, but in a much more coherent kind of a way. But uh, the, the thing that I was mainly taken by, actually, was the fact that the uh, the Liberal Party were, uh, and of course the Liberal Democrats still are, a very international party and very uh, Europe-focused uh, in that sense. And I think ultimately, that's what really attracted me. And so I and John, Thorpe was a very charismatic character. People forget that. Completely. And he never forgot your name. Uh, you met him once uh, as an ordinary member of the party. I met him in, I don't know, 74, and he never, ever forgot your name. And he was like that with everybody. So he had enormous qualities. I mean, it's a tragedy in many ways. Uh, and, you know, I remember him roaring around during the two, two 1974 elections, you know, uh, um, and sadly, his hovercraft broke down one time, you know, stuff like that. But nevertheless, it was a very energetic attractive uh, couple of elections. Sadly, I think the maximum we reached uh, was 18% in the opinion polls. I think we were still uh, sort of 11 or uh, 12 MPs. So we never, But he could have formed you know, a coalition at one point, couldn't he? Well, the numbers didn't quite add up. That is the that is the kind of narrative that's still out there. But I don't think that actually he could have done it. Uh, it's rather like the narrative that was out there that said, oh, well, you shouldn't have done a deal with... David Cameron, because you could have done a deal uh, with Gordon Brown. I don't think the numbers were actually there. It would have been a real problem for us. And you seemingly got involved with the Lib Liberal Party in, in the early 80s. Is that yes, right? through lawyers, through the lawyers first. Yeah. I, I, I helped people. And like, chairman of you know, the Association of Liberal Lawyers. Absolutely. I helped people like Emily Hooson. You know, he was our sort of legal spokesperson. Uh, and, you know, you're, you're in a sort of problem-solving uh, mode uh, in the liberal lawyers. I tried to turn them into a, a, a kind of really uh, useful solutions-oriented body. And I, and I think that that's, that's the role we played for quite a long time. But of course, inevitably, doing that, you meet people, you get involved in the wider policy. Uh, and I took Clement Freud's place, actually, because uh, he wasn't really very interested in um, uh, running the party. On the on our uh, executive committee, uh, so I I was kind of his delegate onto the executive committee, and that's really how I got involved in in helping run the party. And you became chairman, and I became chairman in, in 1986 at quite a young age, to be honest. Quite a young age, um, but it didn't feel you know I was encouraged 86, by Paul you were Tyler. about 37, something like that. Uh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, but again, Don't look a day older, of course. Uh, you, you, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, I mean, you know, look. How much I probably have less self confidence now than I did then. <laughs> you don't know what you don't know at that age, you know. But in '86, you took over. You knew at that point that was an election in '87, yes. probably. So '87 was a not a great result for the Lib Dems. In fact, it was a dreadful year for you because I think you lost your wife at, I, at I, that time. I, it must I, have been. Yeah frightful time it, it, it was and it was a very um some people uh, say a shit time but <laughs> yeah you know because you're trying to help run the general election campaign and you know 
uh, Vicky was uh, really, you know, coming to the end of her life in July uh, uh, 1987. Yes, I mean, it was very tough and you're very conflicted in those circumstances, but we were incredibly lucky. I mean, we had fantastic family support mm. and friends support. Uh, and you know, uh, I mean, that's what that's what happens. You 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 have to step up to the plate, basically. And in '88, of course, became the merger with the Social Democrat Party. Absolutely, and which again you mentioned, David Owen was not keen on. Talk us through the negotiations because you must have been absolutely thick of it. Well, I was, and we had an interesting uh, situation because ostensibly David Steele was the uh, the person who was running the negotiations. Actually, all the internal party convening was done by me. And so I had to kind of keep the thing together. We had ultras who really didn't want anything to do with the SDP. And then we had others who were absolutely dead enthusiastic about adopting uh, the constitution of the SDP and, um, you know, all the policies of the SDP. So we had quite a spectrum of opinion. And, and it, didn't it manifest itself... In- in, in the in the two conferences where you both had to vote on it, yeah, I mean, and uh, you, were you chairing that conference? I, 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 well, we do. We have a we have a rather arcane structure. So, you no, know, we have a conference committee where uh, it's chaired. The sessions are chaired by different people. Um, what I had to do was uh, uh, introduce one set of motions, and the president of the party, Adrian Slade, had to introduce another set of motions proposing the actual merger. So. Uh, you know, the party officers did have to do the business. But, of course, what we were presenting was a pretty much a take-it-or-leave-it package. Absolutely fascinating time in, in British politics. Looking back, are you, you confident the merger was the right thing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, the, the most depressing thing was seeing – I mean, I love uh, – Steve Norris is a very good friend of mine. Um, he was the, uh, a conservative yes, mayoral candidate. Yes, but he was also the candidate and uh, the winner of the Epping uh, Forest by-election. And it was a walkover for Steve because we were split. And the Richmond by-election, which William Hague won, was a walkover for William. You mentioned uh, one of the things you liked about the Liberal Party was the international side of things. I mean, you clearly like a bit of controversy because the two areas where you're very keen on business is Saudi Arabia and China, yes. uh, where you've been a strong advocate of, of continuing support, which are not uncontroversial countries uh, at the moment. I, I think I, I'm, I'm disappointed. I mean, you know, having to find oneself, asp- having espoused trade with, you know, two major blocks, and you could include within, uh, you could talk about the Arabian Peninsula, actually, because, you know, I used to be very uh, a frequent traveler to the UAE, um, uh, you know, having been part of the Saudi Britain Business Council. Uh, and of course, you know, uh, the China, it's very strong China connection, because my late wife was Hong Kong Chinese. But Things have changed enormously, and uh, I do worry very much about the relationship with China and the fact that, you know, Hong Kong is a very different place now than it used to be in terms of uh, human rights and even the ability to do business and so on. But, you know, uh, I'm also... a, a practical business person. I'm a realist, and I, you know, I'm 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 not too uh, I'm not going to um, you know cut off our nose to spite our face in business and trade terms. But I just think that we have to be quite careful um, uh, uh, about who we deal with, uh, how enthusiastic we are, and how much risk we take in terms of our future relationships. Yeah, the issue. One of the issues here is the rule of law. 
in both in dealing with both those countries. And obviously, I've when I was doing the trade agenda, um, heavily involved in both countries, uh, and that must be a sort of um, something you wrestle with too. Absolutely, and uh, but you know at the same time, I think you have to make a distinction between the government for the moment, uh, the regime for the moment, and the people. You know, some of the friendships you know I've got um, uh, uh, amongst uh, Chinese people, both in China and here in the UK, and similarly uh, in the Middle East and here uh, with people of of uh, Middle East background and so on, uh, is you know is, is one of life's great things. So I, I think you have to try and make that distinction and you have to try and sort of see beyond the the short term in that sense but nevertheless i still think that you have to uh, uh, be very realistic and you know sometimes quite tough about what uh, what you expect from uh, a, a foreign government basically mm. looking back at, at your career I mean, the, the, there are several things which define it in a sense from the campaigning point of view if we call it that for want of a better word i want to start with the sunday trading laws in 94 which you um were heavily involved in that that, that actually for a lot of people who've, who've you know, whole generations have been built bought up by the fact that you can go shopping on sunday but of course when you and i were young you know sunday was a dead day mm. halebury must have been very dull on a Sunday because well, we were, were open. the pubs were open. Yeah, you weren't allowed out to the shops there. So talk us through the Sunday trading. You were at Kingfisher at the time, absolutely, which was of course a big wholesale business. Well, a great friend of mine uh, who is effectively my boss, Nigel Whitaker, was the director of corporate affairs, and uh, I mean he very early on spotted the uh, the potential basically for liberalising sundry trading laws and. Uh, uh, you know, basically, he and I spent um, uh, you know nearly ten years, yeah. uh, uh, you know, lobbying uh, uh, from Kingfisher uh, during the eighties and early nineties, uh, getting the laws changed. Now that we, there were several attempts, but we finally got it through in ninety two. I think and the, it was. the the anti, for one of a better word, was the church. Uh, the government who who was your um, um, who really, was your uh, it was the ultras in the church and also i think uh Usdor, who eventually did a deal Usdor. uh they were the shop workers uh, union yeah. uh, who were pretty strong across re the retail sector particularly in the supermarkets they i mean uh, for obvious reasons they wanted to have a premium paid to be paid uh, working on sunday because this wasn't something traditional uh, and it actually the agreement to do that by uh, tesco as it turned out who were quite heavily unionized actually was the key that unlocked the whole thing at the end of the day. Um, but Tesco's at that point were the biggest retailer? Or? Yeah, they were. Uh, and, uh, uh, th that, you know, I think I can't remember whether it was uh, Lord McLaurin, actually, um, who eventually was the guy who unlocked the whole thing because he did a deal with us though. um uh, and so we had quite a lot of mps on side but we had, didn't have that many labor mps um so uh, that was actually why was labor against it well i think it's a matter of, of of worker protection you know and i can very much see the point of uh from from their point of view basically mm -hmm. um and then so what it demonstrated to me because uh, you know nigel always kept in touch with what was then called the jubilee center who were the ultra evangelists who were anti anything happening on a sunday basically he was brilliant at staying in touch with the opposition and it's a political lesson i've mm -hmm. never forgotten you know you've got to understand 
who, what your political opponent yeah. is trying to do. There's no, that's why I read the mail on Sunday, uh, for oh, heaven's sake. Goodness. Um, goodness me. <laughs> uh, you know, great but, paper. But it's one of those lessons in life that Nigel taught me, and I'm eternally grateful. And then, of course, you are able to have a platform when you join the House in, in 98 to campaign on other things, uh, one of which, of course, was tobacco advertising. You were involved, very heavily involved in the tobacco advertising bill. Yes, I was. And, and what was the background to that? Well, the background was that, um, strangely enough, um, the Labour government uh, uh, had promised to ban tobacco advertising. And if you remember, there was all the Bernie Eccleston yes. thing. He'd, uh, uh, Blair had accepted, I think, a million quid from Tony, uh, from uh, from Bernie Eccleston. And I think subsequently they agreed to repay it, actually, uh, if memory serves me right. Um, and uh, But then by some and Then he offered our Green Party some money as well, which, yeah, we, de- which we declined, <laughs> and I was treasurer. But then after the whatever it was, the 83 election, suddenly uh, nothing appeared, and uh, <laughs> despite manifesto commitment. So as a wheeze, actually, this is, I mean, this is the interesting thing. And uh, a lovely person who is now a peer, Celia Thomas, uh, uh, Baroness Thomas, suggested that I actually table the exact... And she's Labour peer. Uh, she's a Lib Dem peer. A Lib, pe- yeah. Lib Dem peer. Uh, she yeah. used to run our office in, in the Whips, and then right. she became a peer. Uh, uh, and uh, she suggested, well, why don't you just table the exact same bill and we'll embarrass the government into uh, giving you time uh, for a private member's bill and get it through? Because, you know, what's not to like? And so actually, uh, I took up hours and hours of private members' time in committee because the Tobacco and Pipe Smokers Association or whatever spent um, hours and hours briefing against the bill. But we got it through. Um, and then uh, the government, uh, I think it was Dawn Primarello at the time, actually, uh, who, when, when she was a health minister, made sure that they got the sufficient majority. Once the bill came to the Commons, and that this is fine. this is a um, it's not a, a rare thing. It often, some, often happens, but this is a bill that was started in the Lords and then went to the Commons. Absolutely, and very, very few private members' bill coming out of the Lords uh, uh, ever see the light of day after after they go to the Commons. So you've got to get government backing, and of course. You know, how could they not back the bill? It was word for word. I made sure that there wasn't a single amendment that got through. It was exactly in the form in which the government had put it forward uh, before the 1983 general election. Another of the great things that you're, you've been a champion of is intellectual property, as you mentioned earlier, particularly in the photography industry. I mean, you and I clashed swords a bit when I was um, taking that bill through the Lord's I mean, this is obviously through your exposure as a lawyer to it and and absolutely right to champion the requirement for it. But what's the sort of drive and what's kept giving you the sort of endless passion for it? What is interesting, because I've always been involved in businesses that have had strong intellectual property uh, uh, or, or strong branding, if you like. I'm a, it, it all starts with brands. You know, it was Letraset, it, then it was London Weekend Television, then it was uh, 
uh, Grand Metropolitan, now Diageo. We had all those brands, retail brands, uh, admittedly, not necessarily consumer product brands. And then Kingfisher, which was Woolworths and B&Q and Comet and Superdrug and so on. So the power of the brand and the, the, uh, the importance of protecting intellectual property around brands is something that I've always been extremely conscious of. And then, of course, you know, I moved into uh, speaking on the creative industries uh, in the early 2000s. And again, you were spokesman. You know, I was DCMS stuff. That was, I was DCMS spokesperson, which absolutely was a great, great role to have. And because you could see the digitization of uh, the creative industries, but again, intellectual property and the, and the digital economy, they're absolutely married together. Really important, uh, uh, you know, trademarks, patents, and so on and so forth. So, I've always felt that uh, rewarding creation and creativity is really, really important. But you, you know, it's nice to say that, but without something tangible mm. that you can enforce, it's very difficult. I think, by and large, we're very strong on intellectual property in this country. I mean, I think the re regulation is good, and and then, of course, the um, the the really current thing that you're involved in, and you started in 2017, I think, as chair of the. Uh, Lord Select Committee on AI, artificial intelligence, which is now the current buzz thing. Uh, and you're a member of the all-party group still, but it is now something that really is occupying a lot of your speaking and, and thinking time. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, um, you're, you're quite right, Jonathan. It's all-consuming. I, I started the all-party group actually in 2016 with Stephen Metcalf, uh, who was then chair of the Science and Technology Committee, and we get on enormously well. Uh, uh, but we both sat down at a breakfast with the Industry and Parliament Trust back in 2016 and said, we've got to do something here. The parliamentarians don't understand anything about, you know, the risks and opportunities of AI coming down the track. So in very and we, early, we have to remember this was seven years ago where AI was not the big topic of conversation. I think we, we had a better inkling than, than some about it. And, and so as a result of setting up the all-party group, I then became chair of the select committee, as you say. And, uh, you know, that was, again, an eye-opener because the wonderful thing about select committees is that they're resourced. And this to, is the you know, Lord Select Committee. Lord select, select Committee. They're resourced to be able to really inquire in some depth. So we spent a year looking at the uh, risks and opportunities and, you know, what, did we need to have a set of ethics? Did we need to regulate? You know, and so on and so forth. And uh, we did, funnily enough, we did two reports. We did um, AI in the UK, ready, willing, and able, question mark. And then we did AI in the UK, no room for complacency as a kind of follow-up report in uh, 220 uh, to say, well, you know, is the government doing what it said it was going to do? So again, we were very lucky in being able to do two reports and really stay on the case. And uh, of course, now the government's published it's white paper um, uh, in the face, actually, of uh, really quite a lot of public concern about the impact of generative AI, chat GPT, GPT-4, and so on and so forth. So you're right. It's, it's, there's a heck of a lot happening out there at the moment. And then, you know, the narrative on AI has always been rather lurid. You know, you've got people talking about extinction and existential threats. Uh, and you've got some people like Elon Musk saying it's more dangerous than nuclear weapons and so on. So actually staying calm uh, and saying, yes, we can regulate this appropriately without uh, 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 destroying innovation, if you like, is perfectly feasible. So, and where, where sense, do you think this is all going to end? 
I'm an optimist. I do believe that at the end of the day, we're going to get much greater convergence over the way we see regulation over AI. It may not be that we all have the same regulation in terms of, um, you know, you shall do this, you shall do that. But when it comes to requirements, say, for instance, to have ethical standards for testing or ethical standards for using data or ethical standards for explaining what an AI is doing, then I think at the moment, the way that we're converging is quite uh, uh, but are we not in danger of being uh, at different speeds with other countries? I uh, mean, we, we, we will obviously regulate because we like regulating. America will almost certainly regulate. But China may well not they may join well coming not. back to the full circle of your relationship with China. Well, full circle. <laughs> but of course, the China, China has rather different philosophy. The China, China doesn't like its government having to do anything particularly uh, uh, compulsory. But private sector in China, I mean, they've adopted the Beijing principles. Uh, uh, they've uh, started adopting regulation over generative AI by the private sector, uh, developed by the private sector. So actually, China is not an outlier in this respect. And if they do become an outlier, then of course you've got the question, when you procure an AI system, you have to ask, well, okay, so what standards does it conform to? And inevitably, if the National Institute for Science and Technology in the States, which is the really dominant player out there in standard setting, uh, says this doesn't conform to our standards, then that's pretty uh, that's pretty heavy stuff for any any AI developer who wants to exploit their product commercially. Yeah, I think it's amazing. Going back to the Lords, obviously the Lib Dem party are far bigger in terms of size than the elected party, which almost makes you hold the balance of power in, in the Lords at the moment, which you mu which must be fascinating for your <laughs> for your your merry band. Yes. Well, of course, what is wonderful is that we've got such a fresh, lively bunch of uh, young MPs. This is not a promotional video for the Lib Dems, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> but no, we are very, we're more than gender balanced in the Commons. Um, but you're right. I mean, obviously, we, we have greater numbers. We're able to look at things in much greater depth. And so I have an extremely good relationship with my colleagues. Um, but at the end of the day, even though we've got, you know, 60 or so peers, we defer to our elected colleagues. They're the ones who have to do the hard yards. They're the ones who have to get re-elected at general elections. And, you know, I, I, and we have a culture of peers going down to help at by-elections, however ancient they may be. Uh, and I'm on my way to one in the near future. I won't ask you which one, <laughs> but very best of luck. Tim, it's been fantastic that you spared the time and giving us so much really interesting life you've had and uh, you continue to make this huge contribution in our place thank you so much for sparing the time oh great jonathan thanks it's been a huge pleasure